Okay, we're continuing on through Colossians. Still have probably a few weeks to get finished up uh, on it. And I will remind you, as I've done every week, that the theme of the letter, that which holds the letter together, really, is that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things. Paul, in this letter, is confronting those who would say that we need something other than Christ. That Christ might be enough to save us, but we need something additional to live the Christian life. And Paul's argument is no, we don't. That everything that we need is found in Christ. And that the Christian life, our, our growth in the Christian life, is not us gaining anything additional along the way, but becoming increasingly aware of all that we are and have in Christ, and learning to appropriate that which has been ours since the uh, moment of our salvation. You know, that verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where it says that when Christ returns, what we will be like Him. Why? For we shall see Him as He is. It's not that we'll be like Him because God will finally give us everything we've been lacking. No, it's that when we finally look on Christ in all of His fullness, we will for the first time, fully recognize all that it means to be in Christ. And it will transform us. And I am convinced, and I become more and more convinced of this, the longer I uh, live as a child of God, that the degree to which we come to really know Christ is the degree to which we're conformed. That the more we grow in our knowledge of Him, the more we grow in our intimate relationship with Him, the more we are changed into His likeness. And unfortunately, our focus gets on fixing, generally, the old Adamic life. We're focused on that. And we can't be focused on that and Christ at the same time. Christ has has got to become our focus. And he will transform everything. Now, you know, we've talked about the fact that we're in the section of the letter where Paul is talking about putting off the old Adamic life and putting on that new life that we have in Christ. And, uh, you know, I said uh, most of the modern translations talk about putting off the old self, putting on the new self. I have problems with that terminology because the old man is very much a self. It lives independently. The new man is not a self. It has a symbiotic relationship with Christ. It cannot function apart from Him. I cannot live the Christian life apart from Christ. It's the Christian life. It's His life being formed in me. I used to tell my students, the Christian life is not a difficult life, it's an impossible life. 
If we try to live it ourselves, we cannot do it. And we are not intended to be able to. We have to learn to rely upon Christ, to live as a branch of the true vine, abiding in Him, letting His life flow through us. Now we're in the section of the letter where uh, Paul uh, brings things down to a very practical level. And I'm going to throw up here again this uh, statement that I've thrown up there on the screen the last couple of weeks. Where it says, in that there are two distinct natures, the old Adamic nature and the new uh, Christ nature. In that there are two distinct natures seeking expression by means of our as yet unredeemed body. We must keep them separated in our thinking. In itself, the old nature is ever strong to do evil. But by the Spirit, the new nature is strong to bring forth righteousness. We've got to keep these separate. And, you know, we're in this section of the letter where Paul has given instructions to wives. Wives, submit. Choose to rank under your husband, which is fitting, and we talked about why. But it's not that the, we're, we're to suddenly teach the old Adamic life to live in a submissive way. It's only this new life in Christ, this life in union with Christ, that can live in that way. Where it's not just an external thing, but something that truly flows from a heart that trusts God in all this. Last week we talked about the command to the husbands to love their wife. Agape. We've talked a number of times about agape, that it's not so much an emotion as it is a value-driven action. The husband is to place value on his wife and be willing to pursue her best, even at great personal cost, even if he gets nothing in return for it. The old Adamic life isn't going to do that. The old man is selfish. If it seeks to pursue what's best for the wife, it's with the desire of getting something back. And that's why Paul also says don't become embittered. <laughs> because if the flesh tries to do it and does not gain the response it wants, it will become bitter. And if that bitterness is there, we need to understand what that is telling us. Is that we're trying to do it through our old Adamic uh, fleshly nature. And we need to let it push us to Christ. And realize the only way I'm going to be able to do this and have a proper attitude in it is through my a growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we also looked at last week at, at what uh, Paul says to children. Obey your parents. And this is written to the children. And I said it shows that 
Paul believed that even children can put off the old man and put on the new. They have that ability. We sell children short so often. We think they're all, all they're capable of are a few Bible stories. That they really can't understand biblical truth. A lot of them can understand it better than we do. Because we've got all this baggage we've brought with us. That we have to unlearn. But this week we get to what it says to parents and fathers here in particular. Chapter 3 verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. And in the most ancient manuscripts, it really reads more similar to Ephesians 6.4, where instead of exasperate, it says, do not provoke your children to anger. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes as we move forward. What on earth Paul is saying here. But, you know, last week I pointed out, you know, it's easy for wives to look at what Scripture says to the husband. And it's easy for the husband to look at what Scripture says to the wife. And it's easy for us as parents to look at what Scripture says to children. And we are to teach our children what Scripture says. But it's it's so easy to, you know, focus on that and just read over so quickly what Scripture says to us as parents. And just ignore it. Now certainly, our children, as they live their lives in Christ are to do so in a way that honors the Lord, which uh, shows itself in obedience. But as parents, as we put off the old and put on the new, we're equally responsible to deal with our children in a way that doesn't frustrate and discourage them. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time you know, on this subject this morning, I know we have this brief phrase. And we really don't have a lot in the New Testament uh, with regards to parenting. And I'll talk a little more of that as we move on. But you know, when it comes to the matter of raising children, the passage that's more quoted than any other in Scripture is Proverbs 22.6. Which in most translations, in fact every one that I know of, reads, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And there's a, there's a lot of parents out there who live burdened down by guilt because their kids didn't turn out good. And they say, well, Proverbs says if I raised them right, they'd turn out right. And others whose kids turned out right are incredibly proud. I did it right, so they turned out right. And yet, you know, I, over the past few years, I've heard several people who were Hebrew scholars 
state that this verse can also be translated, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, it will not depart from him. And I think it's a more accurate translation. The point being, not that if you raise your child in the way he should go, that he's guaranteed to follow that path. But if you raise him that way, he will always know it. No matter what he chooses, what path he chooses to follow, he'll always know the right path. It'll be with him. And I've seen that experientially over the years. We've had friends whose kids walked away from the Lord for a period of time. But then they came back. Why? Because they knew the way back. They knew what they had been taught. And there's no guarantee they will do that. But I think the point is that if we raise our, our children in the right way, the, our children will know it whether they choose to follow it or not. It will always be with them. So the challenge we face is coming to understand what is a proper way. Now, I think I pointed out last week that, you know, Because the New Testament says so little about parenting, and we as parents, especially the old Adamic nature, wants an instruction manual. Because the old man thinks, if you just tell me what to do, I can do it. And so, if we don't find it in the New Testament, what do we do? We go back to the law. We go back to the Old Testament. We go uh, either to the law or to some of the wisdom statements of, of Solomon. But we go back to a dispensation when the believers didn't have what we have. You know, we go back there, and yet we know from Galatians... That the whole purpose of the law was to be a schoolmaster to bring men to Christ. And while its standard of righteousness is good, it provides no provision for attaining it. In fact, Paul says that if righteousness could have come by the law, or you might say if right living, you know, if living in the right way could have come by the law, there would have been no need of Christ. And we know from reading through the gospel account, the life of Christ, that one of the outcomes of man merely living up to the outward standards of the law is they became self-righteous. You see it in the Pharisees. Self-righteousness is when the outward actions appear right, but the source is all wrong. And in my years of ministry, and in my years of life, One thing I have found is that the most difficult people to minister to spiritually are those who are self-righteous. They are incredibly different. Because their correct behavior blinds them to their need of God. Now, the reason I point all this out is I think it establishes an important principle for parents. 
As Christian parents, the absolute last thing we want to do is encourage self-righteousness in our children. If the majority of our discipline is geared solely towards outward adherence to a high moral standard, then we can win the battle and lose the war. And I know a lot of parents, Christian parents, who have done that. Their children have been, you know, uh, taught the right way to live. And humanly speaking, it has prospered their children. But spiritually speaking, their children are impoverished. They have no room for God in their life. Why? Because they're doing everything right. Why do I need God? They know socially correct behavior, but God plays no role in their, their daily lives. Now the flip side of this is, is those children who consistently fail to successfully measure up to their parents' standards throw in the towel. They reach the, the uh, conclusion that they are without hope and their lives are lived in despair. When I ministered out at FOA, there were a lot of men who came through there that were like that. They had given up all hope early in life. Because they just could not live up to that standard. And no one showed them that that is the whole thing that the old Adamic nature shows us. That we need Christ's provision. But they were never told of anything else. They were just told, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. You don't need to do that. And it was all trying to shape, really, the old fleshly nature. Now, neither of these groups is beyond God's reach. But both, as a result of some well-intentioned actions on the part of the parent, have made the Lord's work a bit more difficult. (laughs) He either has to break through the self-righteousness or break through the despair. Now, you might say, well, you know, God's the same yesterday and today and forever, and so His standards are the same. And I'm not saying His standards have changed, but the way of achieving them has changed. They've changed because of Calvary. The Old Testament saints were very limited in what they had to work with. They didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. They didn't have the riches of God's grace. They didn't have the provisions of Christ. But for us to go back and live on the basis of what the Old Testament saints had is a slap in God's face. Because he's given us so much more. So, you know, if we don't draw our instructions from the law, where are we to get it? Because the New Testament's pretty limited. But... Let me remind you that in almost every area of life, the instructions of the New Testament are far more limited than that of the Old. And this is with a good reason. 
Under the law, regulations were bountiful, but provision was limited. Under grace, provisions are boundless, and regulations are limited. Under the law, you know, God sought to make Israel a people set apart by outward regulations. Under grace, we become a holy people by means of God's life within. Huge difference. And God has designed the Christian life so that every day, moment by moment, we have to rely upon the Lord. Now, we want God to just spell it all out. And he refuses to do so because he wants us to become a people who, is de- who are dependent upon him. With Israel, they said, God, there at Mount Sinai, they said, God, tell us what you want us to do and we will do it. The epitome of arrogance. And God told them, 613 commands and prohibitions. You can't get much more specific than that. And for the next 2,000 years, they failed. The law said, you know, if you keep, God said, if you keep the law, I'll bless you. If you break the law, I'll curse you. And Paul says, the law became a curse. <laughs> Because they couldn't really attain the blessings. All they could attain was the curse. And God requires of us that our lives be directed not by a bunch of outward rules and regulations, but by the Spirit's ministry within. And that holds true in the area of child rearing. Success in raising our children as unto the Lord won't come from having a well-defined system of regulations. It'll come from having such a, an intimate relationship with God that His Spirit does, uh, directs us and guides us step by step, day by day. Will that guarantee that our children will turn out perfect? No. God is a perfect father and we still struggle and we still fail. But at least we'll be doing it his way. Guided by his spirit. Now this doesn't mean everything is subjective. In both Ephesians 6.1 and Colossians 3.2. I mean 3.20 God makes it clear that children are to honor and obey their parents. And as those who... Uh, are raising our children. We're to teach our children that. But also in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6, God goes on to give equally clear instructions concerning how parents are to deal with their children. As I said earlier, we may be quick to listen to what it says to the children, but a little slower about what it says to us. And what these two passages share in common is that parents are told neither to provoke their children to anger or, nor exasperate them. Now, you know, if we are to, uh, you know, teach 
our children to follow God's instructions for them, we have to begin by setting the example of following his instructions for us. And this includes not only provoking and exasperating, but as Ephesians 6 goes on to say, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But our instruction of them begins first and foremost with the example we live out. Our words will only be valuable if they're backed up by our lives. And they're only going to be backed up by our lives if we put off the old and put on the new man. Our children's value system is shaped far more by who we are than by what we say. And so what do our lives say? Do they say that the most important thing to us is knowing God and making him known? Or do our lives say the most important thing is how our children make us appear to others? And that's an important distinction. You know, I had my struggles with my parents growing up, especially with my dad and, and uh, his involvement in ministry and the amount of time it took. But, you know, Jill and I asked me one time why that didn't make me, um, I guess, uh, closed to ministry. But I, I said the one thing I did see from my parents is how much they valued God. They may not have done everything right, but their lives said, God is, knowing God is the most important thing. And that value system impacted me in a positive way. You know, is our desire to bring our children into a deep understanding and love of God? Or is our desire for our family and us as parents to look good in the eyes of others? Are we seeking a life-changing reality for ourselves and our children? Or are we simply concerned with putting on a cloak of self-righteousness? Our kids can see it. It's important. All the outward molding in the world is meaningless if our children do not come to know God as life itself. We've really lost the battle if they don't see the importance of knowing him. Now, <clears throat> while the New Testament might be light on commands with regards to parent-child relationship, it's heavy on example, the example set by our perfect Heavenly Father. How does God as our Father deal with us? That should show us something about how we, we should deal with our children. First of all, his dealings with us begin with a guarantee of full acceptance. There is, I have no question in my mind whether God accepts me. Now, he may not accept all my actions. But I don't have to fear whether he accepts me or not. And yet, many children spend their lives struggling on, over whether their parents accept them. They feel like they have to be somebody else. God accepts us. And I think as parents, you know, uh, God wants us. As Christ's life flows through us, 
to assure our children of their full acceptance by us. Alongside that total acceptance comes unconditional love. God is acting in agape love towards us all the time. Now that doesn't mean he does everything we want him to do. He is always seeking our best and we can know that he is always seeking our best. That even if things are hard, that there is a good reason for him doing those things. Our Heavenly Father is quick to forgive. 1 John chapter 1 assures us. You know, as we acknowledge our sin, He forgives it. There's no problem with forgiveness. And He does it over and over and over and over again. As parents, how quick are we to forgive? Truly forgive. You know, it's been a long time since we've had kids at home, but we worked with college kids for 15 years. And I found how powerful forgiveness is. And you know... Over and over again, you know, I'd go around with that administration, go around with other teachers. Uh, Well, there's got to be consequences. You know, you can forgive them, but there's got to be consequences. And I said, look up consequence. It means a result. Maybe the consequence of their coming forward with their sin is forgiveness. Maybe that's the consequence they need to experience. I know I had a student cheated on one of my exams and you know her RA was a a woman we knew pretty well she came to our study at night on Tuesday night and she told me later she said this girl came to me and told me that she had cheated on a test and she said my stomach went into a knot And she said, then I paused and I said, Who did, whose test did you cheat on? And he said, Rick's. And she said, my stomach, the knot left it. She said, go to him. It will be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Go talk with him. And she came and we talked. And a lot of teachers would have given her a zero or kicked her out of the class. We talked about it. We did go back through the exam and she showed me every question she cheated on and I counted them all off. But you know, she went from being a back row student to sitting on the front row. She started coming to my Sunday school class. We had a a small group in our church. She started attending the small group. I could have come down hard on her. But I forgave her. And I won her heart. And instead of, you know, her going away, you know, again, ashamed of cheating, but just beat up by me, she was encouraged to come forward, you know, to move forward. 
You know, I used to tell them at the school, I said, I'm not afraid of sin that comes out into the light. I'm afraid of the sin that's kept in darkness. And we can either put fear in our students where they are unwilling to come talk to us and be forgiven and and be encouraged and, and guided forward. Or we can scare them where they just keep it all in the dark. God guarantees forgiveness. Why? So that instead of hiding from Him, we flee into His arms when we sin. We go to Him and say, I have blown it, Father. Our Heavenly Father does chasten us. But I have found in life He doesn't do it quickly, nor does He do so selfishly or in anger. Generally, when we come to Him and acknowledge our sin, He doesn't slap us upside the head. Chastening generally comes when we are unwilling to acknowledge our sin. When we're unwilling to deal with it. When we're willing to deal with it, He forgives and He guides and He moves us forward. And our Heavenly Father knows how to deal with us as individuals. He seeks what's best for each of us. In life nor in Scripture have I ever seen God deal with two individuals the same. Why? Because we are different. And we've got to recognize that with our kids. I had to recognize that with my students. I'd tell them right from up the front of the room. I said, I'm not going to treat you all the same because you aren't the same. I'm going to try to, under the Lord's guidance, deal with each of you in the way that is best for you. Because God values who you are. I was listening to a video some years ago that was dealing with working with students with learning differences. And the guy made the point, he said, you know, in a lot of areas of life we think as adults, but when it comes to fairness, we think like five-year-olds. That fairness is treating everybody the same. He said, that is truly unfair because everybody's not the same. And we have to recognize that with our children. Our children will say, you know, well, it's not fair that you did this or that for this one, but they aren't the same. We have to look at, let the Lord guide us as to our our children's needs and minister to them like God does to us. Now we can go on and on about this, but again, it gives you an, an idea of, you know, the example set by God. And I thank God that He doesn't deal with us on a law based system. The letter kills, the Spirit brings life. And we have the Holy Spirit within us. Now, as I said earlier, the two primary passages that speak to this subject is Ephesians 6.4 and Colossians 3.21. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, 3.21 say, uh, Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not exasperate, or the older translations also said, provoke your children to anger, that they may not lose heart. Now the one thing that these two passages share in common is that the way we raise our children as new creations in Christ, 
is neither to provoke them to anger nor cause them to become disheartened. Now what on earth does it mean when they say parents are not to provoke their children to anger? In his book, Families Where Grace is in Place, Jeff Van Vondren does a good job of expositing this phrase. He points out that in the New Testament, there are three main words used for anger. Perigosmos, thumos, and orge. And the first, perigamos, is the word found uh, here in uh, in Ephesians 6.4. And in the older... older manuscripts of Colossians 3.21. It means seething hostility. It refers to an anger that's forced to exist beneath the surface uh, or suppressed anger. Van Vonderen goes on to state, unfortunately many Christians think this is what we're to do with anger. Just conceal it where it can't be seen. He goes on to state that the text clearly states concealing anger is not a good thing to do. The second word, thumos, is found in Galatians 5.20. Speaks of outbursts of anger or anger that is explosive. It's a manifestation of this fleshly nature and it is as such it is sinful. The third, orge, appears in the command given in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin. Regarding this word, Van Vonderen writes, the first thing to note is having this kind of anger is not automatically sin. Orge comes the closest to the pure experience of anger. The kind of anger that's not good or bad, it's simply a signal that something important has been threatened or damaged. And what's important is how to handle this anger. In the verse preceding the command, Paul instructs us to put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Following that instruction comes the command, be angry and yet do not sin. And his point seems to be that when someone says or does something that angers us, rather than allowing it to produce a sinful response, we need to speak openly and honestly with the one who offended us. Now, what does this have to do with parenting? Well, a lot. Here, Paul tells us that one of the principles that is to guide us in the Christian parenting is not dealing with our children in a way that develops this seething, under-the-surface hostility. There's no way we can uh, deal with our children without them ever uh, becoming upset or angry. But we can deal with them in ways that doesn't develop an underlying resentment and hostility. And he goes on to write, he says, if we're going to avoid this, we have to understand what are some of the things that provoke this under-the-surface type of hostility. And he has a pretty good list in his book. Uh, As we'll say, when Joe and I first read it, we questioned some of it in our own mind, but then we thought, No, these things have either impacted us or people we know. So what are some of these things? We're going to run out of time. I'm going to just hit on them pretty quickly. First of all is not allowing our children to express their anger. You know, know, we just don't want our kids to express anger. So we teach them to push it under the surface. 
And rather than when we make them angry in some way, rather than talking with them about it, we just tell them to hide it. And year after year after year after year of hiding it, it becomes, you know, bitterness under the surface. Living with double standards. Don't do what I say, do what I do. I mean, don't do what I do, do what I say. We tell them one thing, but our lives say something very, very different. And when that goes on year after year, it begins to build a hostility under the surface. Speaking, thinking, and feeling for your kids. And he's got some good examples in his book. It's a worthwhile book for you who are parents. Families where grace is in place. He says, you know, where you start telling your children what they feel. Or are speaking for them. Uh, instead of really honoring them in it all. Turning a deaf ear. I don't want to hear it. Never being willing to really listen to our children. Now, at times, you know, we listen to them and they're wrong. And we can sit and t discuss that with them and explain to them why their thinking is wrong. <laughs> but a lot of parents don't want to do that. They don't want to hear. And so we, uh, you know, just silence them. And over the years... That builds up. You know, stop and think about it, those of you who have a job. If you go to your boss with a problem and he says, I don't want to hear about it. Or you go with him, to him with a good suggestion. I don't want to hear about it. Just do it my way. And he does that over and over again. And he doesn't care what you have to say. How does that affect you over time? It affects our children the same way. When parents are absent, when kids long for us to spend time with them, but we always have something else. And I know men have jobs they have to do, but there's a lot of men who then when they aren't working, they have a lot of other things they fill their lives with other than their children. And I know the guy, uh, Van Vonderen was talking about one year as a public speaker, he just took on too much and he was gone all the time. And one time he was packing for a trip and tears were in his eyes and his daughter came in and said, Daddy, don't worry, we won't forget you. And he said, I thought, no, they won't forget me, but what will they remember? They won't forget me, but what will they remember? And I, I know... You know, I struggled with this with my dad. He was so involved in ministry. And I saw it with a lot of MKs whose parents were just constantly, you know, gone in ministry. And it left its mark. And then finally on his list, and I'll close with it, when we shame our children. Ben Vondren points out through his book that families where grace is, uh, that are not grace-based always end up being law-based and shame-based. Shame makes them feel defective, helpless, useless, and small. You know, using shame is not a good way of approaching things. 
And that was something that God really impressed me with very early on at, at the Bible Institute. Just not shaming my students at any point. And I saw teachers do it. Call students down in class, shame them in front of everybody. And it just was counterproductive. I know my last semester there, I had a girl who was constantly fooling with her phone in class. And I know most teachers would have called her down for it. Made an example of her. I began praying, Lord, if you want me to say anything to her, give me an opportunity to catch her by herself and let me talk to her. And she and some other girls would walk past my office every day at a certain time. And one day she walked by by herself. (laughs) And I called to her. And she came in and said, I want to say something to you. And I'm not doing this as your teacher. I'm doing it as your brother who loves you and really cares about you. I said, you would get so much more out of class if you'd leave that phone alone. And I saw the tears well up in her eyes. And she looked at me and she said, you're right. And I said, I'll never say another word to you about this. It's between you and the Lord now. But I just care about you. I could have shamed her in class and it would have thrown a wall up between her and me. This didn't produce a wall. You know, stop and think about some of these things. Now, there's a lot more I could say about the whole thing of bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, which is the way of grace. But we can't raise our children in grace if we don't understand grace. And grace doesn't just turn a blind eye to everything, but it has to do with how we deal with things. God deals with us graciously. He confronts things. But He does it in a gracious manner. And if we do that with our kids, I think we can win their hearts along the way instead of driving them into this bitterness that stays with them. You know... Many children, and as they grow into adulthood, their view of God has been shaped by their father. If they have, have had a really good, you know, relationship with their dad, they generally, you know, have a very positive view towards God being their father. But if they've had a bad relationship with their father, they struggle with the fatherhood of God and seeing that as being a good thing. So we want to raise our children. Did Joe and I do it all right? No. And some of these principles I've shared with you, we didn't know back then. But there are things the Lord has taught us over the years. Now, when we get back together in May, we'll move forward and, you know, he moves away from family relationships to dealing with you know, more work relationships, and then some, some broad principles uh, just with uh, dealing with people in general. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you now just for the instructions we have in your word. Lord, they aren't, when it comes to parenting or husbands or wives or children, it's not a long list. And yet, Lord, 
There are things we cannot do through our own strength and wisdom. There are things that require us to walk in moment-by-moment dependence on you. May we learn to do that, Lord. And Lord, for those who still have children at home, may they see Christ in their parents. May they see a deep love of you. And may they be drawn to you through it all. Now, Lord, we look forward to our time in the main service, the time we spend singing praises to you, and the time we can spend looking into your word. Lord, just open our hearts to whatever truths you have prepared each of us to learn. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.